It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We have just gone through one hell of a brutal week. This is Deconstructed. Well, President Biden will go to Louisiana on Friday to survey the damage left behind by Hurricane Ida. At least four people were killed and a million left without power when the Category 4 storm swept through New Orleans on Sunday. Hundreds of thousands remain without electricity, air conditioning or tap water for a third straight day. Officials are scrambling to supply water and food as a heat warning is in effect. New images of an apparent tornado ripping through Annapolis, Maryland. Tornado watch was issued in New York City. Flood warnings are in place from New York City all the way into Maine. Death and destruction in Tennessee. There's over 400 millimeters of rain falls in just 24 hours. A new state record. High risk alert for flash flooding in much of the Northeast tonight. The National Weather Service issued a flash flood emergency for the first time ever in New York City. Over in Brooklyn, cars were submerged underwater. Rescue crews worked to save drivers trapped in the floods. From the Nevada side of that fire, you can see the skies are gray with all of that smoke in the air. The fire has been burning for 19 days now in El Dorado and Amador counties. Now to the latest on the Dixie fire. This is still burning. It's the second largest fire in state history. It's been burning for seven weeks now. None of this is sustainable. Something has to give. And so far, what's giving way is the predictable climate we've depended on for centuries. Now, for decades, the leading argument against doing anything to confront climate change was that it would be too expensive and cost too many jobs. That was always dubious on its face, but now, even on its own merits, the argument is drowning. Nothing could be worse for our economy and our standard of living than a world engulfed in flames, floodwaters, and tornadoes. Yet the Democratic response this week has been almost worse than meaningless. On Thursday, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin took to the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal to argue for a, quote, strategic pause on the party's $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, which is heavy on climate investments. Ignoring the fiscal consequences of our policy choices will create a disastrous future for the next generation of Americans, wrote Manchin. That he wrote that line without irony while California was on fire, Louisiana molding and plunged into darkness, and parts of the Northeast literally underwater, is truly extraordinary. How can he seriously talk about a disastrous future for the next generation while this very generation is living through one disaster after another? He goes on, for those who will dismiss my unwillingness to support a $3.5 trillion bill as political posturing, I hope they heed the powerful words of Admiral Mike Mullen, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who called debt the biggest threat to national security, unquote. Now, debt, to be clear, is not a national security threat. In fact, our ability to carry the debt and sell it to foreign countries and foreign investors is actually a source of our imperial power. But Manchin's not being serious. He knows debt isn't a national security threat. Otherwise, he wouldn't have voted for trillions of dollars for war and wouldn't vote for ever-increasing military budgets. 
the actual threat that debt represents for somebody like Manchin has to do with taxes. Because he and other debt hawks have spent decades demanding all government spending be, quote, paid for. Now that Democrats plan to spend trillions of dollars, they also plan to tax the rich and raise corporate tax rates to do so. Believe it or not, that's not terribly popular with the rich. Manchin has expressed real openness about raising taxes on corporations and on the rich, partly because he's bitter about how Mitch McConnell rammed through his tax cut in 2017 without including Manchin's amendments. But his enthusiasm for those tax hikes only goes so far, and it doesn't reach $3.5 trillion. There's something else going on, too, as Daniel Bogoslaw reported for The Intercept on Friday in a story I'd encourage you to read. Manchin's company brokers coal. He made his fortune in the coal industry and continues to earn income of some half million dollars a year from his coal empire, which is officially run by his son, Joe Manchin IV. In other words, the bulk of Joe Manchin's current income is tied to the very industry at risk of shutting down as we transition to clean energy. And nobody wants to give that up. Amid all of this catastrophe, we continue building new infrastructure to prop up the fossil fuel industry, with the most egregious example being the energy company Enbridge's project called Line 3, a massive pipeline that snakes across the Canadian border, through Minnesota wetlands, and under the Mississippi River, also it can transport tar sands oil, the dirtiest of the dirtiest energy, to be refined and, for much of it, exported. It is, quite literally, pouring gasoline on the fire. This weekend, members of the squad will be traveling to the construction site to join the protests, which will surely bring it some more attention. Ilhan Omar from Minnesota will be joined by Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Cori Bush. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will appear remotely because her district is underwater. Today, we'll be joined in a moment by Tara Huska, an attorney and an activist who's been on the ground in Minnesota for years fighting the project. But first, we talked with Intercept reporter Aline Brown, who herself has been on the pipeline beat for years, from Keystone XL to Dakota Access and now to Line 3. Aline, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, can you talk a little bit about where this project is being constructed Sure. So Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline is being constructed through northern Minnesota, and it links the tar sands oil fields of Alberta, Canada, to this kind of transport hub in Wisconsin that's right on the other side of the border from Minnesota. So the bulk of this project is is Minnesota. And so when they call it Line 3, they they talk about it as a replacement for a previous line three. Is it is it that simple? Is it a an old corroded pipe that they're just swapping in a new one, or is something else going on here? Uh, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, the biggest thing to understand about that replacement framework is that much of the pipeline that's being put in is going through new land. That's in part because the Leech Lake Reservation, the tribe there, uh, the Ojibwe tribe, did not want the pipeline to go through their reservation. So Enbridge is rerouting the line through new land, through many new waterways, and it is a significant expansion. I think capacity will double. And so what other treaty lands is this going through? And, And could that complicate Enbridge's strategy? Yes. 
I mean, it already is complicating Enbridge's strategy. There is one additional reservation through which the pipeline passes. That's the Fond du Lac Reservation. That tribe initially fighting the pipeline was against it. But after a lot of negotiation with the company, Fond du Lac ended up getting on board. We don't know the details of that agreement, but it seems to involve a lot of money. There is a big chunk of land in northern Minnesota that is not reservation land, but that uh, Ojibwe tribes have treaty rights to. This land is land where they have rights to hunt and fish and gather and travel. And there is, the U.S. government does have an obligation to consult with those tribes before it allows any company to put a pipeline through it. Multiple tribes that have rights to that land have been fighting the pipeline in court, have been fighting the U.S. government in court, attempting to um, get this permit revoked, have essentially argued that they were not properly consulted and that they do not consent to this pipeline. So a, a previous version of this Line 3 pipeline famously produced what is, I believe, the largest inland spill inland oil spill in U.S. history back in 1991 in, in Minnesota. Was that in Minnesota? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that 1991 spill and how that plays into the the fight over, over the reconstruction of a new pipeline? Yeah, that was in Minnesota. And at the time, I don't think it got the same kind of publicity that it would today. You know, the the oil spilled into wetlands and it was a major spill. And Enbridge, this isn't the only major spill that Enbridge has been responsible for. The company also famously spilled a lot of oil into the Kalamazoo River. I'd have to look to see what year that was, but you know, 2010. Yeah. In 2010. So about about 10 years ago. Yeah. Yep. 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 So the company has this history of really catastrophic oil spills in Kalamazoo. This tar sands oil kind of sunk to the bottom, was really a disaster to clean up. And so it carries that reputation as it drills under rivers and waterways in Minnesota right now. And so, you know, you heavily covered the protests out at Standing Rock. Uh, You've been covering the protests here. What are the similarities and differences between these two fights? I would say that both sides have learned a lot from Standing Rock as the Line 3 project is built in Minnesota. And really, you know, understanding the way law enforcement and Enbridge are responding to Line 3 opponents, you have to look back at Standing Rock because all of their tactics are kind of adjusted to avoid some of the things that happened there. Whether or not that's working, I'm not so sure. And what what do they think they did wrong in Standing Rock? Because, you know, they effectively lost that fight to the pipeline protesters. Right. What they appear to be most concerned about is, A, the amount of money law enforcement and public agencies spent responding to Standing Rock, and B, the reputational blow that some of the tactics that were used caused. I got a copy of this Standing Rock After Action report that North Dakota agencies put together. And it was striking to me because there was not a lot of reflection actually around the use of tactics like water hoses in below freezing weather. 
there was more reflection on how to better utilize drone footage or how to win kind of information battles. So I don't know that the lessons learned were that violent tactics need to be avoided, but it was more like, how do we look better and how do we avoid spending so much money? And as the Line 3 permit was going through, both those questions came into play and were put into the permit. How so? So how how do those twin goals play out in, in Line 3? So as these hearings were being conducted to form the permit that, I guess the most important permit that would advance the project, members of the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission referred back to what they called counterinsurgency tactics a couple times. They seemed particularly concerned about the activities of the private security firm Tiger Swan, including infiltration. So they had people going into Mm -hmm. protester groups and posing as pipeline opponents in order to gather information. It's clear that at least one utilities commission member was worried about that, you know, said he wanted to protect First Amendment rights. So this line was placed in the permit that says the permittee, the permittee's contractors and assigns will not participate in counterinsurgency tactics or misinformation campaigns to interfere with the rights of the public to legally exercise their constitutional rights. A lot of people have argued that another element of this permit conflicts with that item. How so? So in order to avoid the millions of dollars spent in North Dakota, this special account was set up. So this escrow account was created so that Enbridge could pay for policing expenses and for other kinds of public safety expenses. And the way it works is that a law enforcement agency doing additional work that it wouldn't normally be doing related to the pipeline can submit a reimbursement request to this account. A public official hired specifically for the job looks at that request, approves or denies it, and then Enbridge pays for it. So Enbridge has hired the police in Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, that's how many, many people see it. Enbridge is directly paying for many of the activities that law enforcement are conducting to quell resistance against this pipeline. And so what's the what's the loophole that people think is created by that that would allow type you know uh, counterinsurgency type tactics? I think one of the important things about this permit is that counterinsurgency tactics that term is never defined. But if you look at what counterinsurgency really means, if you look at the US government's definitions of counterinsurgency, if you look at scholarly definitions of counterinsurgency, it's not just about infiltration and human intelligence. It's not about armed force. It's about winning the loyalty of local institutions against opposing forces and kind of getting those local institutions to do your work. Hearts and minds. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's how, if you look at the way counterinsurgency advisors to the U.S. during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the way they talk about counterinsurgency, they talk about road building. They talk about supporting the development of a police force, supporting neighborhood watch groups, offering people jobs. And so paying directly for the police many argue, kind of fits into that umbrella of counterinsurgency tactics and is just one of many 
things that could be called counterinsurgency tactics that Enbridge is engaging in. So on that front, you you have a news story about even deeper collaboration between Enbridge and the Minnesota police. What did you find? So I found that not only was Enbridge providing a fair amount of training to law enforcement in the months leading up to the start of construction, but a pretty close coordination was developed between police and the pipeline company. So one document I received via public information request showed a public safety official inviting Enbridge's Line 3 security chief to regular intelligence sharing meetings. In the email, he says, we missed you at our 9 a.m. intel meetings. Is there another time that would work better for you? This guy is saying that he will rearrange this intelligence sharing space so that an Enbridge official can participate. The day after that email, you have this same official forwarding a list of attendees to a Line 3 organizing meeting of pipeline opponents to a group of officials that includes this Line 3 security boss. So essentially, public safety officials in Minnesota are sharing intelligence, including the names of people attending anti-Line 3 meetings directly to Enbridge, which is these people's political opponent. So what are the police up to? Like, are we, I've been hearing some scattered reports of heightened tension and amped up militarization of, of the police there. Are we starting to see more violence coming from the Enbridge Pinkertons, who are the, I guess, the Minnesota police? Yeah, so I think that The level of violence and pressure has definitely increased as the months of construction have gone on. Aerial surveillance has been conducted for many months. It's something that pipeline opponents, known as water protectors, have noticed going back months. There's also been a lot of attempts to, I guess, pull people over for low-level infractions, which some have described as an attempt to gather identity information. And, you know, more recently, there's been use of less lethal, quote-unquote, less lethal weapons, such as rubber bullets, to halt water protector activity. This summer, a Department of Homeland Security helicopter flew really low over a direct action against the pipeline, kind of sending clouds of dust scattering over the water protectors. And there's also been some attempts at kind of territorial control. There's actually a number of pipeline resistance camps. There's one that has been particularly involved in direct action. And one of the sheriff's offices moved to block the camp's driveway, claiming that this little bit of land that the driveway passed through was actually county land and they didn't have a right to use it. So they're like, oh, yeah, you can access your land. You just have to, like, figure out somewhere to park and walk there. So there's been a range of, of pressures that law enforcement has put on water protectors. So th- this is Minnesota, and so I imagine it's going to be tough for them to continue construction all, all winter. What is what is Enbridge's plan in the coming months? I mean, they say that they are very close to completing construction. Recently, they claimed that they could have the thing running next month. So these are really the late stages of this resistance and this project. And people are really, you know, really saying that 
if there's a moment to stop it, it's now, or the thing will be pumping oil very soon to the detriment of the climate and the health of the lands and waters of Minnesota and elsewhere. Is there any indication that the Biden administration is engaged on this? I believe that water protectors have engaged with the Biden administration throughout construction, but um, so far they have not given strong signals that they will be standing against this. In some of the legal efforts that tribes have made to stop the pipeline, the U.S. government has supported the permits that were handed out during the, I believe, during the Trump administration. So, so far, there's no signal from Biden that he will be stepping in here. A number of members of the squad are, are headed up this weekend. Is this coordinated with any kind of bigger action, or is this just a handful of progressive members of Congress going there? I mean, I guess I would say that uh, there are just constant actions happening in Minnesota right now, and people are using like a range of tactics. In the past week, people were holding protests and sit-ins in Minnesota's capital of St. Paul, as well as I believe in Washington, D.C. There's constant like lockdowns and road blockages, attempts to stop construction in northern Minnesota. So I guess I would be sort of surprised if there's no action happening up there this weekend, but I'm not sure if there's something specifically centered on the squad. Are you, are you in New York right now? I am in New York, yes. How's your neighborhood from what whipped through there? So my, I mean, the block surrounding my apartment is fine. You know, there hasn't been too much flooding, but just looking at videos of communities just like a a few blocks away, the streets look like rivers. You know, friends just like a 10 minute walk away had water pouring into their home. We've really been hit hard here. And how, how are the subways? I don't believe they are functioning much right now. Most of the people I know who would normally be commuting are not. And yeah, all through last night, water was pouring in. So yeah, it's pretty hard to travel right now. Well, it's good that we have a pandemic in the midst of this biblical flooding so that the there were fewer people on the <laughs> on the subways as they as it filled up. Yeah, I guess that's some kind of silver lining. <laughs> so Aline, thank you uh, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was Aline Brown. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Tara Huska, a member of the Ojibwa people, 
was the Native American advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign and has been protesting Line 3 for years now in northern Minnesota. Tara's out in the woods, and we had a couple connection issues, but mostly got through it fine. Tara, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, so so where are we talking to you from? Maywood Camp, which is held by Guinea Collective. We're about 200 yards off the proposed Line 3 route. So w- can you describe for us, like, what what exactly is is going on like what what kind of shovels you know what kind of equipment is in the ground you know as we speak uh actually most of line three has been uh either put into the ground or is in the process of being put into the ground there are still excavators all over the place a lot of equipment that's working on pump stations to electrify the lines because tar sands is a sludge and it requires an enormous amount of electricity to uh, send it through a pipe there are security trucks everywhere, out-of-state workers everywhere, and a ton of cops. This project's been going on for an awful long time. How did you eventually get involved with opposition to it? Yeah, I've actually been involved in this uh, campaign, the Against Line 3, for seven years at this point. started out when it was the portion that is the transnational crossing from Canada into the United States, to then the Sandpiper Project, which ended up being suspended and then... Enbridge put its money towards Dakota Access Pipeline, was involved in that struggle very heavily. And in the meantime, knowing that Line 3 was kind of always on the back burner and making its way through the regulatory process and being rebooted into what it is now. What is it now? The company uh, says, hey, we're, we're just replacing an old pipeline. You know, nothing really to see here. But what do you see there? I mean, what I see is the old Line 3 has an enormous amount of damage that it's caused over the years of its operation. Leaks all over the place. Integrity digs that Enbridge did before it began constructing Line 3 with tar sands right underneath the surface of the soil and huge plumes that were underneath all of the land that it was passing through, which the company tried to spin into, oh, well, that's why we need to replace it. But it's not really a replacement. What it is, it's a brand new project. It's in a brand new location, a brand new route. It's through untouched ecosystems, wetlands, 800 wetlands, 200 bodies of water, 22 rivers. The headwaters of the Mississippi River is included in that. It wants to build a new corridor, a new pipeline corridor. So about two weeks ago, there was a pretty significant demonstration that saw the the police there kind of ramping up the violence against against protesters. What 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 happened there? What what led up to that? As far as police brutality goes, the police brutality has been much more significant on the actual line itself. We are out of sight, out of mind, and that's kind of the idea behind putting a lot of these projects through indigenous treaty territories. Is we're not at all factored into. Uh, I guess it's fine for our homes, fine for our people, but not other places. Similar to Dakota Access Pipeline, where it wasn't okay to send it through Bismarck, it was okay to send it through right next to the reservation. So about a month ago, myself and several others, a large group of us were fired at with less lethal ammunition uh, that was paid for by Enbridge, wielded by police officers up in the 1863 Treaty Territory. That was followed by sheriffs engaging in use of pain compliance, which is essentially torture on water protectors. That has been an ongoing tactic over the last few weeks. What do they mean by that euphemism, use of pain compliance? I mean, they dislocated someone's jaw, so that's happened. By use of pain, like they're saying that they're going to extract compliance by causing pain? People are immobilized, chained to a machine, or whatever it happens 
to be. And rather than going through the extraction teams, which has been the case with hundreds of nonviolent blockades up to this point, some sheriffs have taken it upon themselves to instead immediately engage in use of pain and trying to get people to unclip, telling you know, one person, I'm going to, I'll stop hurting your friend if you unclip and they can hear their friend screaming on the other side of them because a sheriff is hurting them. That's what's been happening up on the line. You were hospitalized recently as a result of police violence. Can you tell me a little bit about what led up to that and what happened there? I was shot at by police officers with rubber bullets and mace who were firing at us at point blank range. They split open someone's head right in front of me, shot another person directly in the heart. I was shot several times. My injuries were such that when I made it to the jail, when I was brought to Pennington County, the police officers and the EMTs, they ended up bringing me to the hospital to get checked out. And I was told by the physician that my injuries were consistent with the injuries inflicted upon me um, and sent to jail and ended up being in solitary in a jail cell by myself for four days without medical care after that. How are you now? I mean, I haven't been hurt as much as some other people have been hurt. Like some of the folks that experience pain compliance have what might be permanent facial paralysis and damage, something they're calling Bell's palsy or whatever. And I have some scar tissue and one of the hits was pretty intense, but these harms that are being enacted on people's bodies that are engaged in nonviolent resistance are disgusting and appalling, gross violations of human rights. How much time do you think you have to stop this pipeline? It's to the point now of the construction of the line being almost complete. There has been a very intense resistance on the ground that has finally garnered more national attention and has resulted in some pressure points of legislators and celebrities and and that that sort of attention on this particular project the realities of the situation i think are starting to really catch up to people and hit them in in a place that they really feel and realize like the gravity and intensity and the urgency of climate crisis so i do think there is opportunity to intervene and to make a different decision that was made in dakota access which was We'll let oil flow and years later, the tribes will win in court because we should have considered their tribal cultural resources and we should have considered climate crisis and we should have ordered an environmental impact statement. That's exactly the same things that are being asked for here in the Line 3 fight, an environmental impact statement and consideration of tribal cultural resources and environmental impacts. You you said something that I didn't realize, that, that it takes a lot of energy to push tar sands oil through the pipeline. I think, I assume probably like a, most people who don't know don't have any idea what they're talking about that it just uses gravity and it just flows downhill but that's that's not the case so what what is what is the process that that pushes tar sands oil through this this pipeline yeah tar sands is a sludge so it's not like crude oil sweet crude is what i guess the industry would call it or like fracked gas or some of those other fossil fuels tar sands is actually a sludge it's processed, it's it's ripped out of the ground in the form of bitumen and clay and processed with chemicals to make it into not quite fully viscous, but at least a, a substance that can be moved through a pipe, which is then electrified. And there's these massive, massive pumping stations that are pushing and causing huge pressure to the line. So it's a highly pressurized line. Is that what makes them less stable and more likely to spill? 
There's all kinds of different pieces of that. I mean, there's the reality that pipes corrode faster when they're underneath power lines. And line three is, it requires the energy that is the nuclear, like that is the equivalent of all the nuclear energy currently in the state of Minnesota for this section of pipe. Jesus. Like that's how much energy we're talking. It is the most energy intensive form of, you know, so-called energy in, in the world. It's the, it's called the dirtiest fossil fuel in the world for a reason. It's incredibly carbon intensive. Line three is the emissions equivalent of building 50 brand new coal fire plants. That's what we've been saying. Like, there's no way that this would pass any climate test in any semblance of a review. And that just hasn't been considered here because it's been a state level environmental impact statement and they've considered it in like the little chunk that it is. And there's still been incredible division even among the state. Like, so Minnesota's Department of Commerce actually sued Minnesota's Public Utility Commission saying that Enbridge didn't prove its need for the line. They couldn't justify the oil forecast to build it through the wetlands. What has your interaction with the White House been on this? Are they are they taking this seriously? It has been a situation in which there has been doors open due to the enormous amount of pressure from people on the ground and from this growing understanding in North America of just how deep we are in the climate crisis. I've been on several calls with Gina McCarthy and with the Army Corps of Engineers and the Council on Environmental Quality, the EPA, like you name it, if they've been at least pressured into having a conversation. And the Army Corps of Engineers has actually physically been out here twice in Minnesota. They are deeply concerned about civil unrest. They are deeply concerned about smearing Biden's climate presidency, I think. But it seems to me that because there are so many other issues also occurring that there's been a political calculation of we'll cancel Keystone XL, we'll let line three through and ignoring indigenous sovereignty all the way along, ignoring the treaty rights of my people and the cultural genocide that would take place if wild rice is wiped out of this portion of the territory. I mean, this is, this is part of who we are as people. Can you talk about those two things in particular? Like, it it does seem like there's finally from the courts at least some some willingness to take treaty rights seriously in a way that there wasn't in even in the recent past. Is that a potentially fruitful lane? Yeah, and I think that's been like the the response and other struggles similar to this one, like Dakota Access, where you've got a court that says, yeah, the tribes were right, and these pieces should have been considered and they weren't. And now what are we supposed to do? What's the reparation for the harm that was caused? Do you know the background to how that legal shift evolved? In the second part of the 20th century, people would say, well, yeah, it's cute that there were treaties, but you know, we have abrogated those and that's a real shame and we're very sorry for that. But that's history. We can teach it in third grade and we can all move on to a place where people are like, no, 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 actually this is this is written down. The United States government agreed to this. This is just as binding a, a law as a law that was passed by Congress in 1872 or 1888 or 1842. So how did how did that kind of legal evolution take place? I mean, a couple of things. I would say like the tendency to discard law as ancient and old when regularly citing the First Amendment, the Second Amendment from the Constitution mm-hmm. is a pretty... Right, rather selective there. The Second Amendment is like on the back of bumper stickers on people's vehicles. And like, it's something that everyone in this country understands. But yet you bring up treaties that were signed after 
created or to create this country and the land sessions that did create this country. And everyone's like, oh, well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I would say like what I've observed over time of studying federal Indian law and practicing and now being a advocate for a number of different issues involving Native people, the ripples and effects of the murder of George Floyd and the culmination of racial justice, like those ripples are still reaching out. Like that was right around, like right after that time was when we saw a Supreme Court say words along the lines of just because we've broken treaties for a long time doesn't mean we should continue to do it. So I think there's there's a lot of pressure that's being realized and actualized into the readings of the law because federal Indian law in particular has been really, really frenetic and precedent doesn't really seem to be something that is absolute in this particular area of law either. Like every every other place, there's like at least some sort of precedent, something that you follow in federal Indian law. It's you never know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And, and so if the treaties actually are followed in the path of this of this pipeline, what are what are the legal implications of that? If the treaties were followed in this, the Anishinaabe people have a right to not only use of factory rights like hunting and gathering, there's also a specific right to wild rice. This pipeline, just on its construction alone, has harmed and affected the water quality. Water quality is, is so critical when it comes to the survival and life of wild rice. It's also been a situation in which the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, their DNR, approved Enbridge to take 5 billion gallons out of the watershed. 5 billion gallons of water. Like, that is an insane amount of water. During a drought, an extreme drought, a lot of the wild rice beds are empty. Like, the lakes are empty. I I can't... It's really hard to put into words what it's like to see an empty lake that's now a field. And I've witnessed that in several different places at this point to see wild rice where people are portaging way, way, way out to the middle to even be able to float in a canoe. The harm is there. And that's before any sort of spill. Like they're, they're not even, they've, they've been spilling chemicals. There's been 28 spills of chemicals already during construction of this line. And I can only imagine what it's going to look like when tar sand starts leaking into the watershed, which is what these pipelines do. They leak. And so it, it, it feels kind of open and shut in a sense that it's specifically listed there in the treaty. This specifically abrogates it uh, quite, quite obviously, quite plainly. You know, the United States, you know, legal system is now paying some actual attention to to treaty rights. Um, have have has that argument carried any weight, or are you only getting people's attention when you talk about kind of climate change or and 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 broader environmental destruction? The issue with the judiciary route is that it takes a really long time. So there's the state level arguments, which don't include a lot of those pieces. And then there's the federal district court, which does include those pieces, right? Because then you're involving federal defendants and federal obligations. And so a lot of those those issues have not been considered. Again, I would turn to Dakota Access, which is a much more prominent struggle, I guess, in a lot of environmental circles. The Standing Rock Sioux people didn't get their rights heard until years after the flow of oil through Dakota Access Pipeline. It's only been during this Biden administration that there's been a a finality, which is, yeah, the tribes were right. But now we don't have the, the, the judiciary decided it doesn't have the authority to shut the oil flow down. And it's on the Army Corps of Engineers, Biden's Army Corps of Engineers to shut it down. 
Biden's Army Corps of Engineers declines to intervene. And so the pipeline is operating illegally. And everyone's pointing at everyone else saying, well, it's not my, it's not, it's not my obligation to enforce the ruling. Whose is it at that point? What is the thing that, that needs to happen at this point to stop this project? Like, what's the thing if you woke up and heard on the news X, X happened? Is it, is, it, is it Biden stepping all the way in? Is it at that level at this point? Well, there's uh, Jamie Pinkham at the Army Corps of Engineers. He's the assistant secretary who's been out here twice. He's also a tribal member. He just got called on by the Red Lake tribal chairman through an op-ed. Could suspend the project tomorrow if he wanted to. Could suspend the project today by uh, suspending the 404 water crossing permits and ordering a review. That could happen right now. President Biden could intervene easily, could say, you know, here's the executive order and the authority. Like they, they're already, they, it already exists to order an environmental impact statement. That's exactly what Obama did when Dakota Access Pipeline was so fiercely resisted. Governor Walls could weigh in at, some, at any point, has not said a thing during the course of this, was out at the Minnesota State Fair judging the butter sculpting contest while hundreds of police officers and troopers were surrounding teepees on the mall in front of the Capitol and water protectors that were in front of his mansion. I mean, there's things that can be done by these decision makers, but they have to be brave to do it. And so far, we've seen absolutely nothing in that arena. So with the squad coming out this weekend, do you think that will bring it enough attention or do you think that, or wh- wh- where's your where, where are you on the optimism pessimism spectrum i think it's every single lever every single avenue and these are folks who are very progressive and are possessing of large platforms of people that will bring attention inevitably to this project and to the ongoing struggle that's been in place and there are you know, hundreds of nonviolent direct actions that have occurred, thousands of hours of regulatory review and educational materials and all the things. So there's a wealth of resources there for people to learn about this. And hopefully Biden feels that pressure and Jamie Pinkham feels that pressure and Gina McCarthy feels that pressure and they realize we're not going away. And we haven't this entire time. Well, Tara, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, you guys. That was Tara Huska, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Bessie Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work... Go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.